The bell tower is chiming. It is now 7.30 p.m. in Tucson, Arizona. Welcome to all of you here at Stewart Observatory, and welcome to those of you watching us on Zoom for the third Stewart Public Evening Lecture of the Spring 2022 semester. Before we introduce tonight's speaker, I just want to let those of you here in person know that the clouds went away. It's a beautiful night and the Raymond D. White Jr. Telescope in the historic 100-year-old Stewart Dome will be available for you to view at the end of tonight's lecture. Also, I've opened up the ground floor, which is our visitor center slash museum. If you'd like to see some historic artifacts as well as some uh, information on current projects at Stewart Observatory, feel free to stop in. The door's unlocked. It's on the ground floor. You go up two flights of stairs to get to the telescope, the white building next door if you've never been there. Um, and if you have any questions, our speaker has told us that you're feel free to raise your hand during the talk, but we'll also take time for questions uh, at the end of the presentation. And for those of you watching on Zoom, if you would type your questions into the chat box, and uh, from time to time, we'll check it and we'll read out any questions that you may have. So, thank you, So, uh, we are continuing our series of talks on the James Webb Space Telescope, which is up and being shaken down by the NASA crew. So, you're going to uh, continue to hear about some of the science that astronomers here at the University of Arizona will be doing with the new James Webb Space Telescope. Our speaker tonight is Professor Ilaria Pascucci. Ilaria is from the little town of Pizarro in Bella Italia. My grandfather was born in Bella Italia, not far actually from Pizarro. Uh, she received her Laria degree in astronomy from the University of Bologna which I believe is the oldest or one of the oldest universities in the world. Yeah. Ah, because her PhD degree in astrophysics is from the uh, Max Planck Institute for Astronomy, which is in Heidelberg, Germany. She then came here as a postdoc uh, at the time of the Spitzer Space Telescope mission. So she was here for a while at Stewart, and then she went to the Space Telescope Science Institute. She was there at the time of the fourth servicing mission for the Hubble Space Telescope. That's back when we had a space shuttle. Um, and now she's back here in Tucson. She is a professor in the Department of Planetary Science, the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory, which is our sister department across the street. And she is here to tell us how to look forward to JWST on the topic of protoplanetary disks. Professor Pascucci. Okay, thank you. <laughs> all right, so um, can you hear me well, first of all? Yeah, okay. So thank you very much for those who came here in person and uh, for those who are listening to this talk uh, via Zoom. And thank you, Tom, for the nice introduction. Um, so I, at least I, I think this is really uh, an exciting moment for, for everybody, for me as a scientist and for all the other scientists to get the chance uh, to use uh, the most powerful telescope that was ever built and for everybody else uh, really to uh, see which type of new discoveries will uh, soon happen with, uh, with the telescope. Interesting, okay, here we go. Um, so for those who don't know much about JWST, I want to spend a few slides to tell you why it is such an incredible uh, telescope. 
And then uh, in the second part of the talk, I want to uh, first to give a brief of overview of how planets form and how JWST will help us uh, answer some of the open questions uh, in the field. And as I said to Tom, please feel free to raise your hand, your real hand if you are here or your virtual hand if you are online and you have a clarifying question, I'd be happy to, uh, to stop and clarify maybe some of the jargon that I'm using because this talk is really for you. So uh, don't be shy. All right, so how many of you have seen the launch of JWST? Raise your hand, your virtual hand. Well, that's great. It was very early in the morning, 5 a.m. Uh, I watched it too uh, in the bed. And uh, so let me show you some picture. Everything obviously was uh, successful. It was uh, uh, the 25th of December. Uh, here is uh, um, a photo from the members of the uh, Webb Telescope team. And I've chosen it uh, to remind myself as well as the audience that this is an incredible mission because it comes from the collaborations of uh, different countries. So NASA, so the um, space agency here in the US, but also the European Space Agency and the Canadian uh, Space Agency. Obviously everybody was uh, really excited, still still excited by uh, all the successes uh, so far. And for those who have seen uh, um, the launch of JWST, I'm pretty sure uh, you have also seen this beautiful image of uh, uh, JWST after the launch uh, vehicle. And so when uh, JWST started to go to its uh, uh, final orbit in the Lagrange point uh, too. So why is JWST so exciting? I have this uh, um, figure here uh, to show how the mirror size of JWST compares with other space telescopes that were launched. Um, the predecessor of JWST, the Spitzer Space Telescope is here. And then I'm sure all of you are familiar with the Hubble Space Telescope. And uh, uh, you see there is almost a factor of 10 in size, in the mirror size, when you go from Spitzer to uh, uh, James Webb. Uh, I like to show this uh, uh, picture when giving people an impression of how large is JWST. So here you see the mirror and this uh, uh, white part of the telescope is, we'll discuss it after, is the sun shield. And if you consider this, uh, the size of the telescope, including the sun shield, it is actually larger than a tennis court. So imagine a tennis court and then this large telescope uh, there occupying uh, more than the size of it. Now, uh, because uh, the telescope is so large, uh, it couldn't be uh, launched uh, all in one piece. And in fact, the mirror itself, if you go back to this figure, uh, is not a monolith mirror. You see there are all these 18 segments that make up uh, the James Webb uh, mirror telescope. And so uh, this is an image that shows how JWST was packed just before launch. And uh, this is instead another image showing how it fits very nicely, fitted very nicely in the Ariane 5 launch vehicle, which was provided by uh, the European Space Agency. So all of you know, uh, JWST is uh, uh, doing very well, um, but uh, I don't know how many of you have seen uh, actually this uh, uh, video of uh, the deployment of the telescope, right? The telescope was packed and so it had to open up. And I think it would be nice uh, to see it together to appreciate really um, the challenge in uh, the engineering challenge here. So let me uh, share the screen. Now we go here and uh, we can start this video. So this is going to be less than two minutes, but I think it's really worth it. You can see here on the side um, what uh, uh, this uh, um, animation illustrates how this telescope is going to open up. So now uh, you see here the sun shield, the part of the sun shield uh, opening up. 
Uh, and uh, of course, we have not seen this for real, but this has happened because the telescope is well up there functioning uh, as it should. Um, and this animation, I think, really illustrates uh, the complexity of uh, the whole uh, deployment. This is really the first time that a telescope so complex has been put there uh, in space. Um, you can see still uh, the sun shield now is opening up on the side. Then uh, it will, the membrane will inflate. And then only at the end, uh, you will see the secondary mirror coming down. And then finally, the, um, the wings of the primary mirror will also uh, open up. Okay, so this was the secondary mirror. And now we are in the last stage, one of the last stages in which the side of the main telescope, the main mirror uh, will open up. All right, so that was it. So let me return to here. Okay, and uh, this is actually not a comprehensive list, but almost close to it of all the things that could have gone wrong. So there were many of them, uh, but luckily uh, everything turned out to be as expected. Uh, so in addition to the mirror, primary mirror, secondary mirror, sun shield here, there is also a box here, which is uh, the, um, integrated science instrument module, and that's where the instruments of JWST are located, the scientific instruments. Uh, this is a picture illustrating that there are four uh, main uh, instruments there. Uh, some of them, they take only images, others they take spectra, and then there are some instruments that take so-called spectroimaging. And uh, uh, this is quite, uh, um, uh, relatively new uh, technique and very exciting for us because with spectral images, what happens is that you get an image of your source as illustrated here. And for each pixel in that camera, you can actually disperse the light uh, and get uh, spectra uh, of uh, um, the uh, emission at those, at those locations. So there is much more information in this type of spectral imaging than you would have with the other classical technique. Now, uh, there is also a very nice uh, two, uh, website uh, that uh, NASA have put together to see what is happening with web, uh, as well as giving you uh, indication of which are the next steps. So let me tell you a bit more uh, what you see here on, uh, on this website. Um, so here is a sketch of the telescope. Uh, on this side, you can see the temperatures in Fahrenheit and in Kelvin of the hot side of the telescope and on the cold side of the telescope. Here on the right side, uh, you can see the um, temperatures of the instruments, uh, which are again on this module uh, on the back. Uh, we are now uh, at this location uh, in the mission. And so I will describe which are the steps that are happening now. The deployment of the telescope was here at the beginning. And then uh, there was also uh, some weeks in which the telescope had to travel to the location, this Lagrange point where uh, the telescope is going then uh, to uh, acquire uh, scientific data. So what is happening right now? Um, right now, these primary mirror is uh, being uh, aligned. So why is that? Well, uh, the reason is that it's not a monolithic mirror. So you have all these different uh, 18, actually precisely, uh, segments that need to be aligned in a way, aligned in a way to uh, focus uh, the, uh, the image. Uh, so this is going uh, to be done uh, right now by observing a single, uh, isolated star in the sky. This is just a sketch showing at the beginning, uh, before alignment, where this uh, star would be positioned in the different mirrors. 
And then the, the goal of the engineering is to uh, change uh, the tilt uh, of these mirrors as well as a bit of the curvature of the mirror so that uh, all these 18 spots, uh, they align at the center in the focal plane of, uh, of the telescope. And so at that point, then uh, the mirror will be um, aligned and then uh, scientific data uh, can be taken. Um, I want to emphasize that this step uh, is actually done through uh, using the NIRCAM uh, instrument, which was built uh, here at Stewart. In fact, the PI of the instrument, the principal investigator is a professor, Professor Marshariti. So her and her team are now actively uh, working on aligning the telescope. And this is a very important step, not only to use this instrument, but all the other instruments available on uh, the WST. Um, what else, uh, what is happening now in addition to aligning the mirror is uh, uh, waiting for the telescope and the instruments to cool down. Okay? And at this step, uh, uh, this is why the, uh, the big sun shield, the size of this tennis court is important. Uh, this sun shield is blocking uh, the sunlight and helps the telescope and the instrument to get cooler. Uh, in fact, uh, as it is written here, basically uh, the, uh, the, the sun shield reduces the temperature uh, of the telescope, the cold side, by 600 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's a significant uh, reduction. And it's needed. It's needed because uh, uh, Webb is observing at wavelengths longer than visible wavelengths. So here we have uh, the uh, sketch of the electromagnetic spectrum. The Hubble Space Telescope is here. We are familiar with it. It's observing at optical wavelengths, the same that wavelengths that you see, we all see with our eyes. But uh, James Webb, as well as in the past, the Spitzer Space Telescope, they observe at longer wavelengths. So you need to reduce uh, the heat of the instrument because at infrared wavelengths, you measure the heat, therefore the temperature of other bodies. So if you wouldn't reduce the temperature of these, uh, um, the telescope and the instrument, that's what you would measure. You wouldn't see other colder objects in the sky. So this step is absolutely necessary. Um, I think we are roughly familiar with the uh, uh, thermal camera that work also at infrared wavelengths, but let me show you uh, a couple of pictures taken at infrared wavelengths to, to drive the point that infrared wavelengths actually measure the temperature of, uh, uh, of an object. So this is a cute picture that I like. Uh, is a thermal image of a dog. And here on this side, uh, you can see the temperature scale. This is in, in um, uh, Celsius, sorry. Uh, so here is 38 degrees Celsius. And it means that these parts that are bright are where the dog uh, is warmer than the parts that are in black. Uh, like, for instance, the nose of the dog. And that's my thermal image. And you can see some similarities between the dog and me, like the dark nose. Okay, you may wonder, why do we want to observe uh, uh, young stars and the um, planet-forming environment at infrared wavelength? Isn't that enough, actually, to use the Hubble Space Telescope and observe uh, these regions at optical wavelengths. So I want to illustrate uh, uh, the reason why we need uh, infrared wavelengths by uh, showing, starting from this picture of the Eagle Nebula. Uh, so this is uh, actually a portion of the Eagle Nebula. So this is a region of a relatively young region, a few million years old, where stars are forming. And these uh, uh, black uh, um, regions uh, here at optical wavelengths are uh, regions where there is uh, more dust. And what happens is that at visible wavelengths, we cannot penetrate through these dust cocoons, and so we cannot see what is inside. Now, using the Spitzer Space Telescope, um, an image of this region was taken in the past, and now I'm going to move to that region to show what we can see at infrared wavelengths. So you see here in the same 
regions uh, before were dark, now there are many more stars there. Okay? So this is the power of infrared waves. But it wasn't enough to use Spitzer because Spitzer, as you remember from the beginning, it was a small monolithic telescope. And so we don't have the spatial resolution to map the environment where planets form. What we could do is to take images like this one where we could see that there are stars. We could see that the stars are surrounded by some material that will form uh, possibly planets but we didn't uh, have the capabilities of imaging uh, those um, locations in detail. So now that I told you a bit about uh, James Webb, uh, and I told you um, why we need infrared wavelengths uh, to study uh, young stars, I want to uh, give a bit of an overview, a very short overview of how planets form. And then I will go into the open questions that uh, we can answer with James Webb. All right, so here is an artist concept of the different steps to form planets around a young star. So time-wise, we start here from uh, the top, and then uh, there is an evolution that we will briefly discuss to arrive to these later stages where you see the star and the already formed planets uh, around. So we start from this cloud at the beginning of dust and gas. For simplicity, you can think of it as a, a you know, kind of spherical cloud. And uh, what happens in this cloud is that uh, we say is gravitationally unstable, which just means that gravity, the force of gravity wins over other forces, like for instance, the pressure of the gas that we know is there. So if gravity wins at this stage, then what happens is that your cloud starts to contract. And when it starts to contract, then it will start to spin around its main axis faster and faster. This is what is called the, uh, this is due to the so-called conservation of angular momentum, which seems to be a very uh, difficult uh, word, but in fact, we are very familiar with it. And so let me illustrate uh, this concept with a nice skater. And you see here, the skater is going at a certain speed and she will go much faster once she brings her arms close to her. And that's also because the conservation of angular momentum. So the same happens with the cloud. Uh, the cloud will move faster, and then, in addition, it will flatten, okay? So the gas and dust that were more orig originally more in a spherical form will form this type of flattened structure, which we call protoplanetary disk. And we call it that way because the material, the gas and dust in that disk, will later on form planets. Now, um, another thing I want to point out is that this artist concept was made in 2007. Right? And uh, more recently, actually in 2014, um, the astronomy community got another big present, which is called ALMA, and that's the Atacama Large Millimeter Array in Chile. And for the first time, it was actually possible to take an image at millimeter wavelengths of this type of objects. So I want to show you how it looks like. If you have not seen it before, that's how it looks like. So I have to say that uh, I don't know the artist was here, but the scientist and the artist made pretty good job in uh, depicting this stage based on the data that they had available at that time. And this is how a real disk looks like. All right. Um, so now we, after this uh, uh, stage, uh, there is another step here, um, which uh, illustrates that uh, when we build planets, I mean, but planet formation uh, involves uh, starting from smaller building blocks, okay? Like uh, when you build a house, you start from bricks. Uh, with uh, planet formation, you start from dust initially, so you can think of 
um, micron-sized grain, like smoke in the air, and then they collide with each other. They get bigger. Uh, you can think of them as pebbles in the beach. And then uh, you need to grow by actually uh, 13 orders of magnitude. So it's a huge growth to get to the uh, size of, of Earth. But that's how we think uh, it works. What this part of the picture is illustrating is that the building blocks of planets have different composition. Some of them will be like uh, uh, dry rocks, like the one we have many in Tooth, uh, but others, those that are far away from the star where water vapor can condense onto ice, will be, we call them wet rocks. There will be some ice on top of that, on them. Uh, so again, that depend, depends on where this material is located because uh, um, the main source of heating for the material, the dust and the gas surrounding the star is the star itself. So close to the star, it will be hot and the material will be dry rocks. Further away from the star, water vapor will condense onto ice and the material will be a mixture of ice and rocks. Uh, this concept where you have the water vapor condenses onto, uh, onto ice, the distance at which uh, it happens is called uh, the snow line. And uh, I want to show again that uh, this is a concept that uh, we are all familiar with. In fact, that's a picture of the Catalina mountain. And here is the snow line. So above the snow line, it's uh, colder and water vapor has condensed onto ice. And so you have a mixture of rocks, bare, uh, dry rocks and ice. Below the snow line, it's hotter and uh, um, ice has evaporated into uh, water vapor. Okay. All right, so this is a very important concept in planet formation. And, uh, it does explain uh, to first order the properties of the planets in our solar system. So this is a schematic view, not to scale, of the sun and the planets in our solar system. And you all know that uh, the rocky planets in our solar system, they look different in composition as well as size from the gas planets uh, and the ice planets in the outer solar system. And this is, we think, because of the snow line, because the building blocks of these planets were uh, different. So this is uh, now the Catalina mountain tilted. At some point uh, during the formation of these planets, we know it from studies of asteroids, that the snow line was in between Mars and Jupiter. So this explains the composition, but also the sizes, because once you start to condense water vapor onto ice in the outer part of the disk, then you have more material that you can use to form your planets quicker. Now, um, I also want to make the point that uh, uh, the solar system uh, is not uh, the unique outcome of planet formation. In fact, we have been lucky enough in the past years uh, to have discoveries of many different worlds. And I want to use this animation to show you how different can be uh, planetary systems around other stars. So let me first describe what you see on this plot, and then I will start the uh, animation. Uh, so here, each of these uh, groups of circles is meant to represent a different planetary system. The solar system is here, and what is shown are only the orbits of the rocky planets, so the inner planets in our solar system. Uh, what you see uh, here in terms of uh, um, field um, circles are the sizes of the planets orbiting each of these stars, which is not shown, but is at the center of all these, these different circles. So for instance, this planet here is a very large giant planet. 
And this other planet here is instead obviously a much smaller planet. So now I will start the animation and you will see these planets start to orbit around their star with the velocity that is dictated by physics, the Kepler's law um, of um, uh, planetary systems. And so you see that uh, the, this type of planetary systems here are more similar to uh, our sun in terms of separation of the planets from the star. But there are some weird systems in this inner part which move as dictated by physics much faster because they are much closer to their stars. So I love this animation and I love when it zooms in, uh, but please don't get dizzy. <laughs> this is uh, really nice and, and really drives home the point that uh, nature can really provide a much larger diversity of outcomes that we, have, we could ever imagine. All right, so back to our um, artist concept of planet formation, which are the questions that are still open. We had a number of amazing telescopes. I feel very lucky uh, to be born uh, in, in this um, time, uh, but we still have uh, important open questions. So uh, first of all, uh, this one, how do gaseous disks evolve and disperse? We know that the material from which uh, uh, planets form at some point is not there anymore around the stars. Um, we know that not all the material ends up into the planets because now we have some counting of the planets that are around the stars. And so we can sum up their masses and we find out that initially there was much more than ends up into the planet. So where is this material going? Uh, we also know that it goes away thanks to observations that we did in the past with the Spitzer Space Telescope. So let me explain a bit this plot. Uh, here on the y-axis, what you see is uh, uh, the frequency of disks around uh, stars that have different ages. So basically with Spitzer, uh, we could take images of star forming regions like the one that I've shown you before of the Eagle Nebula. And we could count how many stars there are in each of these uh, uh, pictures and which of them has a protoplanetary disk. So this is what is plotted here. So for instance, this region with this strange name uh, is a young region because it's plotted here at the beginning of the graph. And most of the stars in that region have a protoplanetary disk. But then look what, we observed a region that was much older here. And what was happening is that in that region, very few of the stars had a protoplanetary disk. So this behavior is telling us that with time, this protoplanetary material goes away. And the question is, how does it go away? So uh, as part of the uh, first, uh, uh, cycle of observations, we could, uh, astronomers could propose uh, uh, different ideas. And uh, uh, I uh, received, I was uh, very happy uh, to know that two of the proposals that I put in were accepted. One of them will use uh, uh, the near spec instrument, the other one will use MIRI. And so um, I think I'll be able to answer that question. Uh, so that will be very exciting. Then uh, uh, there are other questions uh, that other scientists have proposed and there are very important ones. For instance, uh, I told you that there is a snow line in these disks, the building material are of different composition, but we basically have not been able to map where these snow lines are, not only for water, but also for other molecules. And so there are proposals accepted during cycle one that we look at the spatial distribution of ices in the largest uh, protoplanetary disk. Uh, another important question is uh, uh, what is the makeup of uh, the um, atmospheres of this disk? What, what are the molecules that are present there that can be accreted, for instance, in the atmosphere of forming giant planets? So uh, other proposals are going to uh, answer this question as well. 
For simplicity and for sake of time, I decided to focus on this question. Do planets form fast or slow? And I will uh, uh, show a couple of accepted programs that are going to address this question. Um, this is a nice image of Jupiter and uh, it's the largest uh, planets in our solar system. We know that the atmosphere of Jupiter uh, is mostly made of hydrogen and helium in proportion that is similar to um, what we have in the sun. And so we know that Jupiter, and we can extend this to other gaseous planets, giant planets, uh, accreted is large atmospheres from the protoplanetary disk around our sun. So Jupiter must have formed uh, before the protoplanetary disk dispersed. Now, I've already shown you this picture. And so from this picture, we know what is the time uh, it takes to form giant planets like Jupiter. Because we know that by 10 million years, which is down here, right? More than 90% of the stars have dispersed their protoplanetary material. So if you want to form a planet like Jupiter, you ought to do it within 10 million years. Now, we need to put this number into context to understand if this is a fast process or a slow process. So I'm going to ask you a question. How old is our sun? Yes, correct, four and a half billion years. And so I would say that's old and the sun agrees with me. So now looking back at what I said before, the giant planets form within 10 million years. So it means almost 10 times faster than how old is our sun now? And we know the sun can live for another 4.5 billion years. So yes, it's an order of magnitude shorter the process of forming this, these giant planets. So we would say that these giant planets, sorry, I went a little um, faster. The process of forming giant planets is fast with respect to the lifetime of stars like our sun. So we would need to see these giant planets already fully formed when in the protoplanetary disk phase, when there is still dust and gas surrounding these young stars. And indeed, a handful of giant planets have been imaged around young stars, okay? And I want to show an example, uh, which is particularly important for Stewart Observatory as I will, uh, show in the, in the next image, but okay. So this is uh, um, a star and here is the emission from the star is blocked. So there is a coronagraph to block the emission from the star so that we can see the fainter emission from the disc, which is here. And this uh, circle bright spot is, or was at that time, a candidate giant planet. Uh, this same object was actually observed with the Magellan telescope and uh, specifically the uh, Magellan adaptive optic instrument that was built here at Stewart and the planet is still there. So this is really not anymore a candidate, it's a confirmed planet around a young star. So here you can see the planet and the observations uh, and the um, publication were carried out by a former graduate student here at um, Stewart. So here is a giant planet and this other image shows also the emission from the disk. And I wanted to show you the emission from the disk because uh, you see that there are these black regions um, within this large ring that, that is the disk. This is because uh, from the ground, uh, these type of observations were able uh, to, uh, to image giant planets only in what we call uh, disks, uh, evolved disks, disks that have a dust cavity because it's easier, the contrast is easier. So uh, the, the other 
few objects, the giant planets that have been imaged are also in this category of uh, evolved disks. Now, what will be new with uh, JWST is that there are proposals looking to image planets in less evolved disks. So disks that do not have a large cavity, but rather, as we will see, maybe they have a tiny dust gap uh, in, in the disk. And so JWST will be able to tell us if these giant planets, how early basically these giant planets form. So let me show you one example. Um, here, this is the disk, dust disk around uh, AS209, a star, a young star a few million years old. Um, these are images taken with the Atacama large millimeter array. And uh, uh, this image also shows why it's not enough actually to study disks with this powerful telescope. At millimeter wavelengths, you will not be able to directly image your planet because it becomes too faint. That is why you have to go to shorter wavelengths. You have to do it with JWST, for instance, to catch the peak of the luminosity of this young planet. But anyway, back to this image, what you see here are these uh, bright emission, these rings, and then in between there are these gaps, which are uh, actually better mapped on the right side of this image. And theorists are telling us that, uh, well, this evacuated region is evacuated because there is a giant planet in there. So with uh, uh, actually NIRCAM, which again is the instrument built here at Stewart, uh, scientists have um, an approved proposal to look into this gap and directly image a young forming giant planet there. There is another exciting object that will be observed uh, in a similar way. Uh, this is um, a young star. Uh, and what is shown here is again an ALMA image, but of this time of the gas around this young star. And uh, um, you can see that on this side of the image, uh, this is quite smooth. While on the other side, there is a kind of a break in this image. And that has been interpreted as due to the presence, uh, to the presence of a giant planet. And so now uh, scientists are going to use, uh, during cycle one, MIRI, um, uh, which is another instrument on board the uh, James Webb Space Telescope to detect these uh, giant planets. Uh, so I should say MIRI uh, operates at wavelengths slightly uh, longer than uh, NIRCAM. Uh, this is one of the um, spectroimaging facilities that we have on James Webb. So not only you get an image, but you also you get a spectrum uh, at different points. And I also want to point out that although the principal investigator uh, is uh, from, the, um, from Europe, the US uh, principal investigator is also at Stuart, is uh, George Ricky. So. Again, incredible contribution from uh, the University uh, of Arizona uh, to this telescope. Now, um, I told you that uh, um, giant planets, they form fast with respect to uh, the lifetime of, of stars. But what about smaller planets? What about rocky planets like Earth? And how actually did Earth form? So here we cannot use the same technique that we use for giant planets because rocky planets are fainter. And so we cannot just go there and take an image of them while they are forming. So we need to use some indirect ways to test uh, the theories of uh, terrestrial planet formation. So let me briefly mention which are these theories. And then I will tell you how we are going to test uh, the, the new one. Uh, so uh, this is a schematic again for our solar system. So here you see Jupiter and uh, here are um, protoplanets that are going to form uh, the rocky planets in our solar system meant to illustrate that. So the upper scenario, which is also the classic 
scenario of terrestrial planet formation tell us that uh, planets like Earth, they form from the gradual accumulation of asteroid-like body, which were already formed in the inner part uh, of the solar system. And that accumulation, that growth um, of the terrestrial planets took uh, uh, 10 times longer than the formation of the giant planets. Because you see here, the time scale to form the rocky planets is of the order of 100, 200 million years. So it's a process that is longer and happens while the protoplanetary disk has already gone. The new idea, instead of how rocky planets formed, is through the so-called pebble accretion. So uh, to illustrate this point, uh, uh, we can look at the figure below. And so the idea is that you start maybe with the asteroid-sized body in the inner part of the system, but you are not going to crash with other many other um, asteroid-sized bodies which have actually not formed yet, but you are going to take a lot of material from the outer part of the disk. You are going to take many small pebbles, so millimeter, centimeter grains, think about the pebbles in the beach, and you are going to quickly uh, accrete them onto this um, seed of, of the planets, into these uh, asteroid-type uh, objects. What is interesting in these uh, new models of planet formation is that the process is quick. So it takes just a few million years. So in this view, also the rocky planets are going to form during the uh, protoplanetary disk uh, phase. What is interesting in these models is also how much mass you need to move from the outer disk to the inner disk. And this is really significant. So if you want to form uh, um, the rocky planets in our solar system, then you need to move from the outer disk, so beyond the Jupiter to the inner disk, of the order of 100 Earth masses of pebbles, okay? And so the question we have started to explore, and I think we'll be able to answer with JWST, is can we test these uh, pebble accretion scenario by studying protoplanetary disks? So let me first uh, um, explain uh, this schematic picture of uh, planet formation uh, of a, a protoplanetary disk, and then I will discuss how, um, how they look like. Uh, so uh, here what we have is the central star, and then these uh, black dots are meant to represent further out the pebbles, and then uh, closer in, these are larger, and they could, you could think of them as your asteroid-sized body, on top of which uh, your pebbles are going to be accreted. On the other side of the picture, what you see are the snow lines. So here is the water snow line, meaning that closer in, water is uh, uh, in the form of water vapor, and further out, you have a mixture of um, rocks and ice, okay? And here are other ice lines for uh, different type of uh, molecules. So now, uh, as I told you, in this new picture, you need to move in many of these uh, icy pebbles from the inner to the outer disk. So what is going to happen when the icy pebbles cross the snow line? Thinking. They eat up, and therefore, they will release a lot of water vapor in the inner disk. So the idea that we had uh, with a postdoc of mine um, a few years ago was uh, which telescopes can we use to probe the amount of pebbles in the outer disk, and then uh, what else can we do to probe the amount of water vapor in, in, in the inner disk so that we can connect and we can see maybe these uh, um, inward drift of pebbles. And we found that, well, that is possible because we can use the Atacama large millimeter array to probe the pebbles in the outer disk. And these are some images uh, uh, that we took uh, 
uh, in 2018 showing the location of icy pebbles at tens of astronomical units, so well beyond Jupiter. And then uh, uh, we can use infrared spectroscopy instead to look uh, at uh, water vapor in the inner disk. So what you see here is a portion of uh, a spectrum that was taken with the Spitzer Space Telescope in black. And in blue, what you see are uh, uh, water emission lines, so is a model of water vapor uh, in a disk. And so all these are water emission lines. So by connecting these two observations, we can learn about uh, pebble drift. Using the Spitzer data, we looked at small disks, uh, intermediate sized disks, uh, and large disks, and we found that the smallest disks, they were those with the brighter uh, emission from water. This is in agreement with this scenario in which uh, if you have drifted inwards uh, many icy pebbles, your, the size of your disk and millimeter wavelengths will look small, but you have replenished the inner disk with a lot of water vapor. Now, the problem with Spitzer is that uh, we cannot quantify how much water vapor there is in the inner disk. So here is the, we call it the water column density, but in general is how much mass is in the inner disk. We cannot say it with this observation. JWST will be much better for three reasons. First of all, sensitivity. A MIRI, which is the instrument that we want to use, is 100 times more sensitive than the instruments on the uh, Spitzer Space Telescope. Second of all, spectral coverage, which is illustrated here. So you see JWST MIRI is covering this other group of water lines of hot water, which were not available with the Spitzer Space Telescope. And finally, as we have explored with a former graduate student here at Stewart, Mackenzie James, some of you may know her, um, we have shown that actually resolution is very important. So what you see here in this plot um, are in blue, a simulated spectrum of water in a protoplanetary disk using James, uh, James Webb MIRI. And then in pink is the same spectrum, but now, with Spitzer IRS. And so you see uh, that because of the poor resolution, many water lines are blended together and the contrast between this water and the continuum is much lower. So JWST will tell us how much water vapor there is in this inner disk. And so in fact, there are uh, over 30 objects that have been approved through uh, these programs, two of, of which I'm also, uh, co-investigator. And so I think we can really answer this interesting question. Do, um, is pebble accretion, this new idea, a viable way to form uh, rocky planets? So that's all I wanted to say uh, today. And I want to leave here this uh, uh, nice image, uh, a selfie of uh, uh, the James Webb uh, primary mirror. Uh, here are the open questions that I think JWST will help us answer. And I want to conclude by saying uh, thank you uh, for uh, all of the sciences engineers who were able, uh, who contributed uh, to these uh, uh, incredible telescopes and for all of you to uh, listen to this talk. Thank you very much, Professor Pascucci. We do have time for questions from the audience. Those of you listening to us on Zoom, please type your questions into the chat box. Do we have any questions here among the live audience? Well, the other audience is live too, it's just. Thank you very much. Um, I was wondering, will this have any data towards, I know there's a difference in the amount of heavy water versus normal water and earth versus comets when we observe those. Um, will this have some insight as to why that is? Yeah, so that's a very good question. So basically, uh, so the question is related to uh, uh, water that has a substitute with deuterium instead of hydrogen, right? Um, yeah, so um, some people have started actually to look at these uh, older spectra from Spitzer and trying to see if we can disentangle 
this type of heavy water from uh, the normal water, um, I think it's going to be very challenging because of the abundance mostly of these uh, heavy water. Uh, so I don't expect that to uh, be answered, but uh, we certainly should look into the data. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Question up here. Curious, in your two pictures of the uh, giant planets, one of them, clearly the planet had cleared out its neighborhood. In the other one, which was a younger disk, yeah. you had, there was, you pointed out where the planet is. Um, were there follow-on pictures taken of that second giant planet to make sure that that wasn't an artifact and indeed a planet that moved within the disk? Uh, so, uh, for... Uh, it, was, it was the younger disk. The, the, this one or no. the other one? Here, we don't know if there is a giant planet. We don't know it yet, but theorists are telling us that if you want to carve out uh, this uh, gap, then you need a giant the, planet. The next slide. Oh, the next one. This one? Yes. So, let me explain. This is a bit more difficult picture, so let me explain a bit what we are seeing here. So I said, this is a mission from the dust and on this other side of the picture is a mission from the gas and in particular is a mission from the uh, CO molecule, okay? It is done at a specific velocity channel and what you would expect uh, from, to see from that velocity channel would be the Keplerian motion of the gas around the star. But what you see here is that the Keplerian motion is perturbed. So the inference is that that perturbation comes from a giant planet. And this dot is not a real dot, is uh, where we think the giant planet will be. So the giant planet has not been imaged yet, uh, but uh, people are thinking to get a picture with James Webb. Is that answering a bit your question? Oh yeah, I see, uh, not yet, but um, so one has also to think uh, how far is this planet with respect of the star, right? And so as you have seen in this uh, uh, Kepler array, right? The farther the planet from the star, the slower it moves. So um, I think uh, we'll have to wait a decade before we see a movement there. Yeah, thanks. Question here. Ma'am, can you uh, clarify on the right ascension offset astronomical unit and the declination offset astronomical unit? Oh, uh, yes. Okay. So uh, astronomical unit, right, is the, the distance uh, for, yeah, the average distance from Earth and the, um, and the sun. And uh, uh, so this is just uh, like if you would have latitude and longitude, right? Right ascension and declination. And this is meant to illustrate uh, basically how large is the disk in say longitude and longitude and latitude. That's, that's what it is with respect to the center where we place the star. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, how many protoplanetary disks uh, do you expect will be close enough so that you can actually resolve them. With James Webb, right? Yeah, with James Webb. Yeah, so uh, it really depends on uh, which, uh, which tracer you want to use to, to resolve them. For instance, in my uh, proposals here, I wanted to look at um, the gas. And in particular, I want to look at how the gas is removed from the surface of the disk. So there are um, maybe around 10 disks where you could see this uh, outer emission. If you want to use instead, if you want to spatially resolve the continuum emission, that is going to be more challenging because that we think is more uh, compact. Uh, so yeah, it's a bit depending on the science uh, that you want to do. I don't see any questions on the Zoom chat. Uh, we have another question here in the auditorium. You, um, you mentioned the uh, drift of all these, or the hypothesized drift of all these icy pebbles from the outer solar system mm -hmm. to the inner one. Um, 
what exact what mechanism would cause a hundred earth masses or some such of, of icy pebbles to move like mm -hmm. that yeah so that, that's a very good question and i'll try to give uh, a simple answer but i'm not sure so basically uh, what happens is that uh, depending on the size of your particles uh, so okay so there are there is the dust and then there is the gas right and so depending on the size of your dust um, that will be more or less coupled with uh, the gas okay so for instance imagine uh, smoke is very well coupled with the gas so it's lifted but uh, if you would take a rock which so in the disk, that coupling is very important. And it turns out that uh, millimeter and centimeter grains are um, not well coupled and not also not completely decoupled with the gas. And so there is this interaction that leads them to lose angular momentum and to move quickly inside. So those are the grains that are the most subject to this phenomenon of radial drift. If you would have an asteroid size, so 100 kilometer size, it wouldn't, it's not going to drift. It's going to stay there uh, almost unperturbed. So that's, I hope that's understandable. Any other questions? If not, I'll remind you that the telescope next door is open. If there's something up in the sky you'd like to see, just ask our telescope operators and they'll point the telescope to it if it's up in the sky. Now, usually we have these lectures every two weeks, but two weeks from today, March the 7th, is the beginning of spring break here at the university. So that means our next lecture will be in three weeks, three weeks from today, March the 14th, Dr. Skylar Wolf will talk to us. She's going to talk about debris disks mm -hmm. that will be in programs that have been approved to observe debris disks with James Webb Space Telescope. So with that, let us thank Professor Pascucci one more time and have a pleasant evening.